Chapter 5 of Star Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leone Rose. Star Hunter by Andre Norton. Chapter 5 Moisture from the night's rain hung on the tree leaves clung in globules to Rinch's sweating body. He lay on a wide branch, trying to control the heavy panting which supplied his laboring lungs, and he could still hear the echoes of the startled cries which had come from the men who had threaded through the woods to the up-pointed tail-fins of the L.B. Now he tried to reason why he had run. They were his own kind. They would take him out of the loneliness of a world heretofore empty of his species, but that tall man, the one who had led the party into the irregular clearing about the lifeboat, Rinch shivered, dug his nails into the wood on which he lay. At the sight of that man, dream and reality had crashed together, sending him into panic-stricken flight. That was the man from the room, the man with the cup. As his heart quieted, he began to think more coherently. First, he had not been able to find the strong jaws den. Then the marks on the ground at the point from which he had fallen and the LB were here, just as he remembered. But not far from the small ship he had discovered something more, a campsite with a shelter fashioned out of spalls and vines, containing possessions a castaway might have accumulated. That man would come, Rinch was sure of that, but he was too spent to struggle on. No, the answer to every part of the puzzle lay with that man. To go back to the ship-clearing was to risk capture. But he had to know. Rinch looked with more attention at his present surroundings. Deep mold under the trees here would hold tracks. There might just be another way to move. He eyed the spread of limbs on a neighbor tree. His journey through those heights was awkward, and he sweated and cringed when he disturbed vocal tree-top dwellers. He was also to discover that close to the side of the Elby crash, others waited. He huddled against the bole of a tree when he made out the curve of a round bulk holding tight to the tree trunk aloft. Though it was balled in upon itself, he was sure the creature was fully as large as he, and the menacing claws suggested it was a formidable opponent. When it made no move to follow him, Wrench began to hope it had only been defending its own hiding place for its present attitude suggested concealment. Still facing that featureless blob in the tree, the man retreated, alert for the first sign of advance on the part of the creature above. None came, and he dared to slip around the bole of the tree under which he stood, listening intently for any corresponding movement overhead. Now he was facing that survivor's camp. Another object crouched in the dark of the lean-to shelter, just as its fellow was on sentry duty in the tree. Only this one did not have the self-color of the foliage to disguise it. Four-limbed, its long forearms curved about its bent knees, its general outline almost that of a human. If a human went clothed in a thick fuzz, the head hunched right against the shoulders as if the neck were very short, or totally lacking, was pear-shaped, with a longer end to the back, and the sense organs of eyes and nose squeezed together on the lower quarter of the rounded portion with a line of wide mouth to split the blunt round of the muzzle. 
dark pits for eyes showed no pupil, iris, or cornea. The nose was a black, perfectly rounded tube, jutting an inch or so beyond the cheek surface. Grotesque, alien, and terrifying, it made no hostile move, and since it had not turned its head, he could not be sure it had even sighted him. But it knew he was there, he was certain of that, and was waiting. For what? As the long seconds crawled by, Wrench began to believe that it was not waiting for him. Heartened, he pulled at the vine loop, climbed back into the tree. Minutes later he discovered that there were more than two of the beasts waiting quietly about the camp, and that their sentry-line ran between him and the clearing of the L.B. He withdrew farther into the wood, intent upon finding a detour which would bring him out into the open lands. Now he wanted to join forces with his own kind, whether those men were potential enemies or not. As time passed, the beasts closed about the clearing of the camp. Afternoon was fading into evening when he reached a point several miles downstream near the river. Since he had come into the open, he had not sighted any of the watchers. He hoped they did not willingly venture out of the trees where the leaves were their protection. Rinch went flat on the stream bank, made a worm's progress up the slope to crouch behind a bush and survey the land immediately ahead. There stood an off-world spacer, fins down, nose skyward, and grouped not too far from its landing ramp, a collection of bubble tents. A fire burned in their midst, and men were moving about it. Now that he was free from the wood and its watchers, and had come so near to his goal, Rinch was curiously reluctant to do the sensible thing, to rise out of concealment and walk up to that fire, to claim rescue by his own kind. The man he sought stood by the fire, shrugging his arms into a webbing harness which brought a box against his chest. Having made that fast, he picked up a needler by its sling. By their gestures the others were arguing with him, but he shook his head, came on, to be a shadow stalking among other shadows. One of the men trailed him, but as they reached a post planted a little beyond the bubble tents he stopped, allowed the explorer to advance alone into the dark. Rinch went to cover under a bush. The man was heading to the stream-bed. Had they somehow learned of his own presence nearby? Were they out to find him? But the preparations the tall man had made seemed more suited to going on patrol. The watchers! Was the other out to spy on them? That idea made sense. And in the meantime he would let the other pass him, follow along behind, until he was far enough from the camp so that his friends could not interfere. Then they would have a meeting. Rinch's fingers balled into fists. He would find out what was real, what was a dream in this crazy, mixed-up mind of his. That other would know, and would tell him the truth. Alert as he was, he lost sight of the stranger, who melted into the dusky cover of the shadows. Then came a quiet ripple of water close to his own hiding-place. The man from the spacer camp was using the stream as his road. In spite of his caution, Rinch was close to betrayal as he edged around a clump of vegetation growing half in, half out of the stream. Only a timely rustle told him that the other had sat down on a drift-log. Waiting for him? Rinch froze, so startled that he could not think clearly for a second. Then he noted that the outline of the other's body was visible, growing brighter by the moment. Minute particles of pale greenish radiance were gathering about the other. The dark shadow of an arm flapped, the radiance swirled broke again into pinpoint sparks. 
Grinch glanced down at his own body. The same sparks were drifting in about him, edging his arms, thighs, chest. He pushed back into the bushes while the sparks still flitted, but they no longer gathered in strength enough to light his presence. Now he could see they drifted about the vegetation, about the log where the man sat, about rocks and reeds. Only they were thicker about the stranger, as if his body were a magnet. He continued to keep them whirling by means of waving hand and arm, but there was enough light to show Wrench the fingers of his other hand, busy on the front panel of the box he wore. That fingering stopped, then Wrench's head came up as he heard a very faint sound. Not a beast's cry. Or was it? Again those fingers moved on the panel. Was the other sending a message by that means? Wrench watched him check the webbing, count the equipment at his belt, settled a needler in the crook of his arm. Then the stranger left the stream, headed towards the woods. Wrench jumped to his feet, a cry of warning shaping, but not to be uttered. He padded after the other. There was plenty of time to stop the man before he reached the danger which might lurk under the trees. However, the other was as wary of that dark as if he suspected what might lie in wait there. He angled along northward, avoiding clumps of scattered brush, keeping in the open where Rinch dared not tail him too closely. Their course, parallel to the woods, brought them at last to a second stream, the size of a river, into which the first creek emptied. Here the other settled down between two rocks with every indication of remaining there for a period. Thankfully, Rinch found his own lurking place from which he could keep the other in sight. The light points gathered, hung in a small luminous cloud over the rocks. But Rinch had prudently withdrawn under a bush, and the scent of its aromatic leaves must have discouraged the sparks, for no such crown came to his sentry-post. Drugged with fatigue, the younger man slept, awaking to a full day, a fog of bewilderment and disorientation. To open his eyes to this blue-green pocket, instead of to four dirty walls, was wrong. Remembering, he started up and slunk down the slope, angry at his failure. He found the other's track, not turning back as he had half-feared, cleanly printed on level spots of wet earth. Eastward now, what was the purpose of the other's expedition? Was he going to use the open cut through which the river ran as a way of penetrating the wooded country? Now Rinch considered the problem from his own angle. The man from the spacer had made no effort to conceal his trail. In fact, it would almost seem that he had deliberately gone out of his way to leave bootprints on favorable stretches of ground. Did he guess that Rinch lurked behind? Was now leading him on for some purpose of his own? Or were those traces left to guide another party from the camp? To advance openly up the stream-bed was to invite discovery. Rinch surveyed the nearer bank. Clumps of small trees and high-growing bushes dotted that expanse an ideal cover. He was hardly out of sight of the bush which had sheltered him when he heard the coughing roar of a water-cat, and the feline was attacking an enemy, enraged to the pitch of vocal frenzy. Rinch ran a zigzag course from one clump of bush to the next. That sound of snarling, spitting hate ended in mid-cry as Rinch crawled to the river-bank. The man from the spacer camp had been the focus of a three-pronged attack from a female and her cubs. Three red bodies were flat and still on the gravel as the off-worlder leaned back against a rock, breathing heavily. As Rinch sighted him, he stooped to recover the needler he had dropped, lurched away from the rock towards the water, 
and so blundered straight into another Jumalan trap. His unsteady foot advancing for another step came down on a slippery surface, and he fell forward as his legs were engulfed in the trap-burrow of a strong jaws. With a startled cry the man dropped the needler again, clawed at the ground about him. Already he was buried to his knees, then his mid-thighs in the artificial quicksand, but he had not lost his head, and was jerking from side to side in an effort to pull free. Rinch got to his feet, walked with slow deliberation down to the river's brink. The trapped prisoner had shied halfway around, stretching out his arms to find a firmer grip on some rock large and heavy enough to anchor him. After his first startled cry he had made no sound, but now, as he sighted Rinch, his eyes widened and his lips parted. The box on his chest caught on a stone he had dragged to him in a desperate try for support. There was a spitting of sparks, and the stranger worked frantically at the buckle of the webbing harness to loosen it and toss the whole thing from him. The box struck one of the dead water cats, flashed as fur and flesh were singed. Rinch watched dispassionately before he caught the needler, jerking it away from the prisoner. The man eyed him steadily, and his expression did not alter even when Rinch swung the off-world weapon to center its sights on the late owner. "'Suppose,' Rinch's voice was rusty-sounding in his own ears, "'we talk now.' The man nodded. "'As you wish, Brody.' End of chapter 5